This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. As the new year dawns, I'd like to thank so many people for making EM Cases a success in 2022. So 2022 saw more than 2.8 million EM Cases podcast listens and more than 2.9 million page views on the website. This would not have been possible without you, the listeners of the podcast and the users of the website, so thank you so much. And thanks to those of you who have supported EM Cases by registering for the virtual EM Cases Summit this year's February 2nd to 4th, 2023. That money goes to ensuring that we continue providing the podcasts and all the stuff on the website for free. There are so many people to thank behind the scenes, the entire EM Cases production team, the incredible guest experts, all the amazing docs who create the EM Quick Hits, the fine folks at SREMI and at Innovate Web Solutions, University of Toronto EM, and my wonderful family for their support. I have so much to be grateful for, but 2022 was a tough year for many of us. My good friend, colleague, and chief of RED at North York General Hospital, Dr. Paul Hannum, tragically and suddenly died at the age of 51 this past summer, and I'd like to dedicate this podcast to him. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season, that you're keeping well, and that 2023 brings you tons of joy and satisfaction in your careers and in your personal life. All right, let's get started with Swami on entitled CO2 in cardiac arrest. Advanced cardiac life support is a funny term because of that first word, advanced. Yes, it's advanced over BLS, but it's not advanced for the expert resuscitationist, which all of us should be striving to become. There are lots of things that we can and should be doing beyond ACLS to make our resuscitation and cardiac arrest better. Many of the things that we can and should be doing are micro pieces that together make the resuscitation better. And one of those is the use of continuous quantitative end tidal CO2 monitoring. There are a number of places where continuous waveform end tidal CO2 can be really helpful in resuscitation and cardiac arrest. And let's start with the C component of CBA, the circulation. Often when we are providing compressions, it can be difficult to assess the efficacy of those compressions. End tidal CO2 can help us there. So we put the end tidal CO2 on the ET tube or on the supraglottic device, whatever we're using to oxygenate the patient, and we look at that waveform while we're doing compressions. If we see dropping end tidal CO2 while we're providing compressions, what that tells us is the cardiac output that's being generated by those compressions is inadequate. And we're gonna have to change something to make those compressions better. So possibly this is that we have shifted and we're not compressing the heart properly. So this can be a check on the position of where we're providing compressions. It may also simply be that the compressions themselves have changed in quality. They're not quite as robust as they were, meaning that the person providing those compressions might have tired out and now it's time to switch that compressor out. We can also use that quantitative waveform end tidal CO2 as an indicator of return of spontaneous circulation. If we see the end tidal CO2 jump during our compressions, that means that the patient has likely obtained ROSC and has improved perfusion. 
an article by Crickmer and colleagues entitled The Association Between End-Tidal CO2 and Return of Spontaneous Circulation After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest with Pulseless Electrical Activity, published in Resuscitation 2021, showed that a rise in end-tidal CO2 by more than 20 millimeters of mercury was highly specific for return of spontaneous circulation in patients with PEA. In addition, the authors conclude that if you see an uptrending end-tidal CO2 during the resuscitation, that should be a marker to continue resuscitation because you're doing a good job. You might actually be closer to getting that patient back unless there's overwhelming clinical evidence to the contrary. Continuous waveform end-tidal CO2 also can play a really important role in your intubation and cardiac arrest as well as your intubation confirmation. We typically see the use of the qualitative or calorimetric end-tidal CO2, but these devices are inadequate in cardiac arrest for a number of reasons. Number one is that when you're using that calorimetric device, you really have to follow it for six breaths. We know that we don't do that. We often will do one or two and we're like, oh, look, we have color change. And then we're done and we stop looking at it. In low flow states, like cardiac arrest, there might not actually be an adequate amount of CO2 coming up from the lungs to change that litmus paper. This could lead you to pulling a tube that's actually in the right place because you're misled by that change in color or the absence of change in color. Another place that the calorimetric device falls short is that if it's touched by any vomitus, it's going to turn yellow, even though it might not be in the right place. So that's an important limitation to know. So instead of using those calorimetric devices, we should be using continuous waveform quantitative end-tidal CO2 to confirm our intubation, as well as to confirm that the tube is continuing to sit in the right place throughout the resuscitation. It's in these low flow states like cardiac arrest where that continuous waveform is really valuable. You can also use that continuous waveform end-tidal CO2 with a bag valve mask or with a supraglottic device to know that you are adequately delivering breaths. Unlike oxygen saturation, if you're delivering breaths adequately, the end-tidal CO2 is going to give you an immediate feedback telling you. We know that O2 saturation can lag, and so you might be in the dark for 60 or 90 seconds of whether you are actually providing adequate breaths to that patient. Finally, in many systems, we have switched to using superglottic devices as our primary airway while we are running those codes, while we're running that cardiac arrest resuscitation. And end-tidal CO2 can be really valuable here as well to know not only that your superglottic device was placed properly, but that it continues to sit in the right place because sometimes they can shift during CPR. The bottom line here really is that you should be using quantitative, continuous, waveform, end-tidal CO2 during all of your cardiac arrest resuscitations. There's a huge value in knowing the quality of your compressions, whether you need to change the position or the compressor itself, and whether you have obtained return of spontaneous circulation. And in terms of airway, they're very useful in these patients with low flow states to confirm your intubation or to confirm that you are providing good breaths through BVM or supraglottic device. Great points about untitled CO2 and cardiac arrest. To review and add a few other key things, remember that in any critically ill patient, a sudden decrease or loss of untitled CO2 may indicate the need for CPR to be started in the first place. And when it comes to assessing how good chest compressions are, untitled CO2 is an indirect assessment of quality of chest compressions, the location, the rate, the depth. So adequate chest compressions correlate well with untitled CO2 readings of 20 or more. Then there's detecting ROSC. So a rise of end-tidal CO2 of more than 20 is highly specific for ROSC in patients with PEA arrest. So if you're going to remember one number when it comes to end-tidal CO2 and cardiac arrest, 
it's 20. So 20 or more reading of end tidal CO2 suggests adequate chest compressions, and an end tidal CO2 of more than 20 is highly specific for ROSC in patients with PEA arrest. Then the question comes up, do trends in end tidal CO2 help? Well, an uptrending end tidal CO2 during resuscitation suggests that you should continue with resuscitative efforts unless there's a pile of clinical evidence to the contrary. And what about confirming endotracheal tube placement? Well, end tidal CO2 can be useful for confirmation of airway placement and as a subsequent guide for adequate delivery of breaths using BVM or supraglottic device, as well as ventilation rates. Swami did not talk about using end tidal CO2 to call the code, I suspect because it's a bit controversial and can be misleading, but a general rule of thumb that has been thrown around is that if the end tidal CO2 is consistently less than 10 for three to five minutes after 20 minutes of high quality CPR and resuscitative efforts, you are very unlikely to achieve ROSC. And the reason it's controversial is because calling the code is a lot more complicated, as outlined by Weingart in our latest cardiac arrest main episode. And tidal CO2 just isn't sensitive enough, so it should be only used as an adjunctive data point in decisions of termination of the code. It's also important to understand that there are multiple potential co-founders that can elevate or decrease end-tidal CO2 levels, like hypothermia or hyperthermia, for example. So extreme or trending values should be more useful than unwavering mid-range levels, and we should not depend on end-tidal CO2 in the patient who's found frozen in a snowbank, for example. Finally, a good deferential to know is the one for sudden flattening of the end-tidal CO2 waveform. So a sudden flatline in end tidal CO2 may be due to cardiac arrest, but it also may be due to ventilator disconnection or esophageal intubation or capnography obstruction or the airway device dislodging. So much to know about end tidal CO2 and cardiac arrest. Thank you so much, Swami. Next up, we have a great case on QI Corner with Tahara Bate. I won't give it away. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. On today's episode of QI Corner... Let's go back to one of my favorite topics in QI and patient safety, the dreaded return visit. Every eMERGE doc lives in fear of this. But as we said in our very first episode, we're on a mission here at QI Corner to reframe return visits as the learning opportunities they truly are, changing hearts and minds one case at a time. So let's get started. You're in the middle of an unremarkable shift in a mid-sized suburban center. The next patient you pick up is a 77-year-old male brought in from home after presenting with syncope and vertigo. The triage note indicates that this patient was hemodynamically stable on scene, although EMS noted a run of AFib, and he's negative on the stroke screen with no current deficits. On assessment, you meet a pleasant older male accompanied by his daughter, whom he lives with. He states he was walking up the stairs when he suddenly got very dizzy, his words, and felt like he was about to pass out. He got to the top of the stairs, where he subsequently collapsed. His daughter was on scene almost immediately, and noted no seizure activity or loss of consciousness, but thought that he seemed a bit confused, and may have had some word-finding difficulty. He was back to baseline within a few minutes, just before EMS arrived. Review of systems is negative for any current neurological symptoms, including headache. You probe further, the patient characterizes his dizziness as spinning, with no associated posterior circulation symptoms. 
Patient denies any cardiac prodrome, and there's no evidence of vasovagal symptoms. On physical exam, patient is hemodynamically stable with a heart rate of 95 and a blood pressure of 135 on 80. He's afebrile and his O2 sats 94 to 95%. You note, however, that he seems mildly tachypnic and with a respiratory rate of 24, but no real associated work of breathing. You ask him about this and he states he's felt this way for months and attributes it to his COPD, for which he's awaiting referral to respirology. His exam is largely unremarkable. He's neurologically intact, and there's no evidence of head trauma. Cardiac exam is normal. It's got a regular rhythm by palpation, and his chest is clear. Maybe a bit of decreased air entry at the bases, but no crackles or wheezes. His past medical history is notable for COPD, as we mentioned. He also has some CAD with a previous NSTEMI three years ago, hypertension, OA, BPH. He is on aspirin, but there's no other blood thinners, and the rest of his medications are as expected. You order some baseline blood work, including a troponin and ECG, chest x-ray as a precaution due to his tachypnea, and a CT-CTA for this potential transient aphasia. His blood work comes back fairly unremarkable. CBC lights creatinine all normal. Troponin is 12 on a high-sensitivity assay, but doesn't rise on repeat testing. ECG shows a stable, normal sinus rhythm with no ST changes and a couple PACs. Chest x-ray looks good too, maybe some mild hyperinflation. Apart from some evidence of chronic small vessel disease, his CT and CTA are also unremarkable. When you go back to see him after a few hours, results in hand, you note that he seems more relaxed and his tachypnea has improved. There have been no runs of AFib or other arrhythmias captured on telly, and he remains asymptomatic from a neurological point of view. You discharge him home on dual antiplatelet therapy with planned follow-up with the rapid stroke clinic. Your final diagnosis is TIA, potentially undiagnosed AFib. What did you miss? This patient returned to the eMERGE, was actually sent back by the stroke clinic five days later with worsening shortness of breath. Workup ultimately revealed that he had extensive bilateral pulmonary emboli. He was admitted to medicine and after a short stay was discharged home in stable condition. So if we zoom out on the original presentation, in this patient with syncope and collapse, there was a missed PE. Now the question is why? So the first thing we should do when trying to answer that question is to acknowledge that this is a tricky case. You know, we love to focus on the system piece in these segments, but we have to remember that that's only one of the complex interconnected factors that surrounds and governs any patient interaction. If we go back to our framework for looking at these cases, breaking things down by patient, provider, and system factors, there's a lot to unpack here just by looking at the first two. When you think about it, this was really the perfect setup for a missed PE. The diagnostic momentum started with the classification of dizziness as vertigo, which pre-primed us for a neurological diagnosis. This was perpetuated by the pre-hospital EMS report of a run of AFib. However, we know that getting our patients, especially the elderly ones, to pick between vertigo and presyncope can be a Herculean effort, and it's one that's inherently prone to error because of the degree of symptom overlap. Now, this imprecision is one of the reasons we've started to move towards more of a timing and triggers-based assessment. Now, if you want to learn more about that model, you can check out the piece from the incomparable Walter Himmel, the reference in the show notes. 
Secondly, the symptoms of this patient's PE, namely the dyspnea and the mild troponin elevation, were easily attributed to his comorbidities, especially CAD and COPD. In fact, this patient was only worked up for PE after his dyspnea failed to improve with a trial of bronchodilators on his return visit. Now, PE is notoriously difficult to diagnose in COPD patients. Some estimates put the incidence of PE in patients admitted with unexplained or atypical COPD exacerbations at anywhere from 6 to 20%, meaning that those clots were not diagnosed in the ED, but after admission. But wait, you might argue, shouldn't we have thought about PE anyways in the context of this patient syncopizing? Now, it's true that PE is technically on the list of those can't-miss causes of syncope that we all teach our medical students. However, recent literature has confirmed that the prevalence of clinically significant PE as an etiology of syncope is actually quite low, on the order of 1%, and it's almost always seen in the context where your clinical suspicion is already going to be raised for one reason or another. Now, for those who might be wondering where the systems twist comes in, here it is. When the pre-hospital EMS strips were finally located, it turns out what they actually showed was a sinus tachycardia with frequent PACs, and this was incorrectly interpreted as atrial fibrillation. However, the ED physician couldn't verify that because the pre-hospital strips were not available for review at the bedside. Now, most of the literature around ECGs in the field focuses on their utility in ACS, but that doesn't mean that those pre-hospital vitals and the ECG aren't still crucial pieces in other patient presentations, especially if there's a question of arrhythmia. So at the end of the day, what are our takeaways here? Takeaway number one, recognize the margin for error in asking a patient to categorize their dizziness as vertigo or presyncope. And consider incorporating a timing and triggers-based assessment to help avoid prematurely discarding half your differential based on just that one data point. Takeaway number two, stay alert to the possibility of PE in patients with COPD, especially if their dyspnea is not consistent with a typical exacerbation. Consider that the risk of harm from a CTPE in an elderly patient is likely outweighed by the risk of a missed clinically significant PE especially if said patient is dyspneic. And remember, you can always increase the sensitivity of your dimer by using age-adjusted cutoffs. And finally, takeaway number three. Think about what your center does with those EMS strips, especially if you have electronic charts. We used to be able to pretty reliably find them clipped to the front of the chart, but in the era of Cerner and Epic and insert EMR of your choice here, who knows what happens to them? Consider working with your hospital and local EMS to develop a system to archive those pre-hospital ECGs. This is potentially even more important, or is going to be, in our current context of these delayed EMS offload, where the crew that you get the story from is not always the crew that brought in the patient. At the end of the day, we might be tempted to beat ourselves up a bit if this was our case, but remember to flip the script on that return visit and try viewing it as an opportunity to ask what was missed, why it was missed, and how it can be prevented. So until next time, keep thinking about that system and remember, a mistake is never just a mistake. Thanks so much, Dr. Bate, for another great QI Corner. Next up, we have a topic that we don't seem to talk about much in the ED, or probably not enough, and that is organ donation. 
Dr. Andrew Healy, who's an intensivist and emergency physician at McMaster University in Hamilton, was last on EM cases more than a decade ago, and it's great to have him back talking about a topic that he's very passionate about for good reason. Here's Dr. Andrew Healy on organ donation. Hi, my name is Andrew Healy. I'm an emergency and critical care physician. I am currently the provincial medical director for donation at Ontario Health Trillium Gift of Life Network. I'm here to present a really important message today. And that important message is the opportunity to provide the gift of donation occurs rarely in our health system and must be preserved even in states of surge. There's no question that various parts of our healthcare system, if not every part of our healthcare system, is feeling the strain of the current pandemic and post-pandemic syndrome. But it's critical that we recognize that this donation opportunities that may arise in tragic circumstances, in pressurized systems, are not lost. So let's start with a case. 65-year-old female comes in. She's got no previous medical history. She's had a cough for a couple of days and then has a sudden loss of consciousness at home. By the time she comes to you, her GCS is three, she's intermittently breathing, her pupils are asymmetrical, you have a very clear picture of what you need to do next. You provide very specific care to this individual. You're going to provide rapid sequence intubation. You intubate the patient. The patient's transferred rapidly to CT with physiologic support for blood pressure and other hemodynamic parameters as needed. The CT and CT angiogram demonstrates a ruptured MCA aneurysm. As you suspected, the bleed is catastrophic. You connect with your consulting neurosurgeon and the neurosurgeon says that given the neurological exam, the GCS of three, the now bilaterally absent pupillary reflexes, that there is nothing that the neurosurgical service can offer to salvage this situation. The neurosurgeon recommends withdrawal of invasive physiologic support. You have three major tasks in front of you. The first you have to do is you have to be very, very clear about what our role is as emergency physicians and about what we tell the family. So we have not done formal death determination for this patient. We have not done a full brainstem exam and an apnea test that is required for determining death by neurological criteria. What you know right now is you have a catastrophically, very likely irreversibly injured brain in a patient who is physiologically supported within an emergency system and that that family needs to hear that right away. The family needs to be given time to absorb the fact that at the moment, the apparent catastrophic injury is not reversible, but that you will support the patient as you engage the next step in their care. You're not going to say that they're almost dead. You're not going to say that they're basically dead. You're not actually going to use the word death in that conversation. And like you do a hundred times over, you will provide the empathy and caring and trust and competence that is absolutely the core of emergency medicine in catastrophic situations like this. The second thing you're going to do here is care for the patient. That does involve the care for the family. But it, it most importantly involves physiologically supporting this patient by supporting their blood pressure, by providing good ongoing ventilatory care, keeping the head of the bed at 30 degrees, making sure that their neurological status is monitored for signs of improvement or deterioration. And you're going to follow their end organ perfusion. 
as you do that, you are preserving an opportunity for a family to make a decision should a definitive decision be reached about withdrawal of invasive support or about the determination of death. The next step for the critical care team when you engage them, this is point number three, is going to be to provide that support for the family and for the patient to provide space from that event, to provide some time from that event, to absorb the catastrophic news that their loved one has suffered an irreversible injury. They're going to do that in that process, and then they're going to connect with their organ donation organization, and they're going to ask the family. The next step is going to be to examine the patient, determine a formal prognosis. Likely you have the answer here but determine a formal prognosis and determine if they meet criteria for death by neurological examination. And if they do, they're going to proceed with that examination. And if they either reach a decision to definitively withdraw invasive support or they have determined death, they are going to, following that decision or that determination, approach the family for consent for organ donation. That will be an opportunity to identify previously expressed or registered wishes for donation. So be crystal clear about what you know and communicate that with clarity and empathy to the family as if they were your own loved ones. Provide care to the patient and by way of the patient, the family, preserving an opportunity for them to consider organ donation if that becomes the next step and connect with your critical care colleagues for a formal determination of prognostication. I presented you one scenario, and I'm going to provide one major caveat, and that is there are lots of circumstances you encounter, such as anoxic brain injury, where we have no idea really what the prognosis or the outlook looks like, and we should be transparent about that. We should reserve our bias towards a negative prognostication in what is apparent catastrophic injury so that there is time from the acute event and a period of observation, and a period of repeated examination, and potentially additional testing to determine that prognostication so that the family trusts the message they get from the healthcare system, and they understand we are in this together. We, our job is to provide the best care for their loved one and the best care of their family throughout the process. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that this has been a helpful review of the core issues around donation as they present to the emergency department. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fills 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. Thank you so much for that excellent review on three key issues in organ donation in the ED, Dr. Healy. Next up, we have Sarah Fui, who will be speaking for the first time at February's EM Cases Summit on a HALO procedure ED thoracotomy. 
She's also going to be spearheading our virtual simulation sessions on her brilliant virtual recess room platform. The sim sessions at EM Cases are almost sold out, so if you want some state-of-the-art simulations from the comfort of your own home, visit emcasesummit.com to find out more and register. All right, here's the wonderful educator, Sarah Fui. Today, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite places in the hospital, the food court. Specifically, how we can use supplies found in the food court to help us in the emergency department. Our first patient is a young man who presents with a painful, extremely swollen foreskin stuck just below the glands, paraphimosis. This is an emergency. It is very painful and distressing for the patient and can eventually progress to penile necrosis. My approach to paraphimosis includes three steps. Manage pain, decrease swelling, and manually reduce. Pain can be managed with systemic medications, topical gels, or if needed, a dorsal penile nerve block. Step two, decrease swelling. This is where our trip to the food court comes in. We can use granulated sugar dissolved in water as an osmotic agent to help draw fluid out of that very edematous foreskin. How do we do this? First, you're going to grab a handful of sugar packets. There's no exact science to how many are required, but I usually add sugar until the solution seems saturated and no more sugar is dissolving. You need to use warm water that will be comfortable on this painful tissue. Then you're going to soak gauze in the sugar solution and wrap this gauze around the foreskin. You're going to need to use multiple gauze. You will keep the gauze in place and apply gentle pressure by wrapping self-adherent bandage like Coban in place, distal to proximal in two to three layers. You will then leave the entire contraption on for at least 30 minutes. Some resources say this process can take hours, but I have personally found that waiting between 30 minutes to an hour is effective. You can apply ice on top to help further reduce the swelling. Now, there's some permutations available. Some resources recommend putting the sugar and water directly inside a glove or a condom and applying it directly. Others suggest using 20% mannitol or D50 to create your osmotic solution. I personally have found the granulated sugar-soaked gauze wrapped in Coban very effective. In step three, your swelling has now decreased and you can manually reduce the foreskin. You will apply both thumbs to the glands and use your index fingers to apply counter-traction against the foreskin. I have a photograph of this technique so you can see exactly what I mean in my paraphimosis figure. So, food court pearl number one. Use those little packets of granulated sugar that we use for tea and coffee to create an osmotic solution that will reduce foreskin swelling in your approach to paraphimosis. Our next case is different, but the pearl is the same. A lady in her 80s presents with the sensation of something sticking out from her bum. On exam, she has an obvious rectal prolapse. Just like with the swollen foreskin causing all the trouble in case one, we can use granulated sugar as an osmotic agent to help reduce swelling. You can sprinkle the granulated sugar directly on the rectal prolapse tissue, or like we did before, you can soak the gauze in a sugar water solution and then apply gauze to the rectal prolapse. You'll wait at least 15 minutes, and then you can attempt your gentle manual pressure to reduce the tissue. If you still aren't successful, you can try another round of sugar application, making sure your patient's pain has been adequately managed. The only complication you really need to be prepared for is the seemingly endless litany of sugar-related puns that your patient and your team will develop during the course of this process. So Food Court Pearl number two, use the same granulated sugar packets to reduce swelling in patients who present with a rectal prolapse. For our third case, it's late at night in the eMERGE, and Amanda in his 60s presents with a feeling like a piece of steak is stuck. 
He accidentally swallowed a large piece of steak about an hour ago without chewing, and he gestures to show that it feels like it's stuck right behind his sternum. He looks well with no signs of airway obstruction, but he intermittently does lean forward to spit. He has an impacted food bolus. We know that what he really needs is endoscopy for that piece of steak to be removed. However, it's late at night, and we are working in our current healthcare system with limitations that all of us are very familiar with. He doesn't have any sign of perforation or airway involvement, so thankfully he doesn't meet criteria for an emergent scope. Is there anything we can try right now while we're waiting? There are a variety of medications that have been considered and discussed for food bolus management in the past, like calcium channel blockers, benzodiazepines, and nitro, but due to low success rates and possible side effects, they are not routinely recommended. Glucagon is often recommended by our GI colleagues. Glucagon is known to relax esophageal smooth muscle and the lower esophageal sphincter, which is thought to help promote the passage of impacted food. This sounds great, but practically speaking, studies that look at how useful glucagon is have been mixed at best. This is probably because glucagon doesn't work as well in people who have underlying esophageal structural abnormalities, which unfortunately have been shown to be present in most of the people who end up in the eMERGE with food bolus impaction. If you do decide to give glucagon a try, you should treat with an antiemetic before its administration because it can lead to vomiting, which introduces the risk of aspiration. A warning here for my evidence-based medicine-loving colleagues. So far, this segment has already been pretty anecdotal, but things are about to deviate even further from pure EBM and even deeper into the anecdote. Because next, we are going to talk about the use of carbonated beverages, like Coca-Cola, for food bolus impaction. Case studies about this have been around for decades. The thought is that carbonated beverages release CO2 into the esophagus, which raises its interluminal pressure and helps force that bolus into the stomach. So how do we practically do it? This part is tricky. The published case reports use vague words like take sips and haven't explicitly laid out timing or doses. I did see Coca-Cola used once for a food bolus as a resident in a community eMERGE, and it went like this. The patient went to the food court and bought himself a Coca-Cola out of the vending machine. He sat in a chair in the ENT room with suction and a vomit bag on hand, just in case. He took small sips of Coca-Cola every 10 minutes. After about an hour and approximately half a bottle, his symptoms felt better. He was back to baseline. After a period of observation, a successful trial of being able to eat and drink, he was sent home with an outpatient endoscopy referral. Was it the Coke that helped him or just time alone? We will never know. But I do know this. The patient was so grateful for how much better he felt and for my staff's willingness to go a little bit off book. This isn't evidence-based and it isn't in the current management algorithms. It should only be tried for alert, cooperative patients who can spit up and monitor their own symptoms. I know that for me, having seen it work this time, I would at least discuss it as an option with future patients. It might not work and there could be some potential risks, but it might work. And if that piece of steak was stuck in my own esophagus, I would personally want to at least give it a try. Food Court Pearl number three. Consider using a carbonated beverage like Coke or Pepsi to help manage a stable patient with food bolus, as long as both you and the patient understand that this practice is based on case studies and not on official evidence or guidelines. In summary, the food court is not just a place for lunch. Next time you're there, remember that you can use those granulated sugar packages to reduce edema for the management of both paraphimosis and rectal prolapse, and that you might just be able to use the pop you see in the vending machine for your next case of food bolus.
Last but not least, we have a recording from the CAPE 2022 conference in Quebec City with Dr. Jennifer Clara Tang on her top medical legal myths. As you'll hear soon, there's some great practical advice she gives. I got such fantastic feedback from listeners on episode 165, Getting Sued, that we decided to give you some more medical legal goodies. So this time, we're going to hone in on medical legal myths pertinent for Canadian EM docs especially, but probably applicable anywhere you might work. And to help us along, we have the wonderful Dr. Jennifer Clara Tang. Dr. Tang is an emergency physician in Hamilton at McMaster University and a coroner who has an interest in medical legal issues and is serving as the track chair for the CAPE Medical Legal Track here at the CAPE Conference. She's an elected counselor with a governance role on the board of the CMPA, but not a physician advisor. And so she speaks for herself and not for the organization in particular. So welcome, Dr. Tang. Thanks so much for having me, Anton. Let's dive into the common medical legal myths, shall we? Sure. So I want to give credit to my collaborators, Dr. Shirley Lee, Dr. Eileen Bridges from the CMPA, as well as Dr. Julie Oulette-Peltier. So thank you very much for your work on this section. So the first myth, Anton, that I think we should address is that staff should see every patient before discharge from the emergency department. I work at an academic center. We hear this myth a lot. The answer is much more complicated. The answer is not necessarily. So it's important for supervising physicians to determine the appropriate level of supervision on a case-by-case basis. It's learner-dependent, and delegation of responsibility needs an assessment of factors like the patient's condition, the complexity of the procedure, the situation, and the level of experience and skill of the trainee. How well do you know this trainee? How competent are they? It's good practice to see each patient before discharge. That's not always practical in a real-life busy eMERGE department. And the way you treat the situation, if it's an R5 that you've known for years and trained yourself with a simple laceration versus an R1 that's off-service that you've never met, these are two different situations I think we can all agree. When you think about what other criteria a supervisor can use to determine the level of trust to place in a trainee, I think about a few questions. Does the trainee know when to ask for help? Will they ask for help in a timely manner? Does the trainee have appropriate insight into their abilities? And does this patient or situation require expertise beyond the trainee's ability? So even if the trainee has qualified for the EPA or entrustable professional activity, there are definitely circumstances where it's appropriate to supervise the learner. Your R4 may be completely capable of intubating a patient, but when faced with a difficult situation like an intubation in a patient in extremis with epiglottitis, that's a situation where you might consider being present in the room. All cases need to be discussed at some point during the shift, and you need to be able to contact the patient if needed. And it's important to keep in mind that even though we're talking about this as a, as a myth, staff can still have what we call vicarious liability. They are responsible for the delegation decisions that they make. Supervising docs can be held liable for any harm caused by a trainee's negligence if the supervisor was aware or ought to have been aware that the trainee was not capable of carrying out the assigned task or that there was an adequate supervision. The last thing I would say is that each individual hospital, facility, college may have different policies, but 
generally speaking, delegation of supervision is learner dependent and it is not necessarily the case that staff need to see every patient before discharge. So you covered nicely the issues around trainees. Many of the EM cases listeners out there work in places where there are no trainees. What about not necessarily seeing the patient before discharge and having the nurse give them discharge instructions or something that I've commonly seen is, you know, repeat troponin if negative DC home sort of thing. Yeah. So again, the delegation of responsibility, really, you need to know the nurse, right? You need to sort of understand whether they have the knowledge and skills to give those discharge instructions. Is the nurse going to be able to answer questions that the patient has? In some cases, they may be able to answer questions. In some cases, they may not be able to answer questions. So it's very situationally and um, health professionally dependent. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's just good care to personally verbalize good discharge instructions. For me, unless I have a senior resident that I've worked with multiple times, I'll often go in and make sure that I've laid eyes on the patient, maybe even a second time if I'm worried about them, to be sure that they understand the discharge instructions. You know, the studies are quite clear that people don't understand the discharge instructions often. And so sometimes even just repeating the discharge instructions, even if the learner or the nurse has given them discharge instructions, to repeat that to them makes it more likely that they're actually going to remember them. Yeah, so that actually segues nicely into our next myth, which is about discharge instructions. That documentation, that handouts were provided is evidence of adequate discharge instructions. That's the myth. So just giving someone a piece of paper is generally not good enough. So why is that? So providing a handout is not enough. It's the conversation that really matters. Patients need to be informed about the diagnosis, any uncertainty about the diagnosis, the signs and symptoms that would warrant further assessment. They need to have the opportunity to ask questions. They need to be able to understand the instructions that you provide. They need to understand if there's any pending investigations, return to emerge for ultrasound, any follow-up appointments. So the handouts are a great tool and a great starting point, but they are not by themselves enough. It is the conversation that is key and documenting that conversation. If the patient refuses investigation or treatment, there needs to be documentation as well about the informed refusal and associated risk. Now, in situations where the discharge is complex, it can be helpful to have the patient or their family member with them Try to teach back what they heard to you. Can you tell me what you understood? I want to make sure that you're safe before leaving. Can you tell me what you understood? And that way you have an opportunity to say, actually, no, let me correct this part. Or, you know, actually, no, your return to ultrasound is actually tomorrow morning. It's the opportunity for dialogue. That's the most important thing. It's, It's so much more than a handout. Yeah, that's a great little pearl and tip about having them repeat back to you what they understand from what you said. That's a great one. My understanding is that there's actually some literature out there that suggests that the handout sheets are actually very seldom read and very poorly understood. And I would argue that giving handout sheets is pretty much useless. What I sometimes do is after I have a conversation with them, I will write down the key aspects of the conversation by hand and give it to them by hand. So I've written it by hand clearly. Is that something you would say would 
work from a medical legal perspective? What, what's your opinion on the handouts? You know, whether you do an additional handout to your conversation, uh, is there any extra benefit there? So my personal opinion is that you can use the handouts as a starting point, and I will sometimes write extra instructions on the handout. At my institution, we have a free-form text area that we can actually write extra things. It's a carbon copy, so one copy stays on the chart, and another copy will go with the patient. And I'll often ask the patient to bring that copy to their family physician. And I'll write relevant things that the family physician would find helpful to know or follow up on. So I think that using the handouts as a starting point, documenting extra things on the handout, if you can have a carbon copy in the chart or your EMR, that, that's even better. Let's move on to the myth. And that is that patients cannot refuse to be seen by trainees. So I have seen many times in my career, a family who's refusing to see the medical student and the staff physician comes along and very sternly says, this is the way it works here. You have to be seen by the student before you're seen by us. From a medical legal perspective, again, why is that a myth? And in the situation where a patient or a patient's family refuses to be seen by a trainee, how do you, how do you handle that situation? Yeah, absolutely, Anton. I work in an academic center and I think it's a myth that our some of our colleagues believe that just because a patient or their family has walked into an academic center that they must conform or see the trainee first. Patients have the right to refuse involvement of trainees with some exceptions. Patients need to be informed about trainee involvement and their training level. And if the trainee is doing all or most of a procedure, there needs to be express consent that this is happening. I think that in terms of the approach, it's helpful to explore with the patient and their family why they don't feel comfortable having a trainee. There may be reasons that are related to language, religious preferences. It helps sort of address any misconceptions that they may have. They may not understand what a medical student is or a fellow is or a resident. They may not understand they may understand completely, and addressing this with them may help the physician take a trauma-informed approach. Some patients will say to me, I had a terrible experience last time when I was treated by a trainee, and that's why I feel this way. And we want to have trauma-informed care in our emergency departments, and so having this conversation is quite helpful. I think that is also important for patients to understand that there are potential implications of their refusal because safe and effective healthcare today involves care that's provided by teams and medical trainees, residents, medical students, fellows are integral members of these teams. And if the patient still doesn't feel comfortable and the recommended treatment cannot be provided safely without the involvement of trainees, then they can make choices. There may be need to transfer care to a non-teaching uh, hospital or another institution or a non-teaching team where the patients can be accommodated. I think it's also important to address the fact that there are situations where the patient is refusing the care of a trainee for reasons that are related to racism and bigotry and not so much related to care. And the College of Physicians and Surgeons had an excellent article in their publication dialogue. I believe it's called Treating Patient Bias. It is available online. And it discusses some of the challenges for managing the patients and also ensuring that the trainee or the learner feels safe 
in that environment. They reference the Mayo Clinic's SAFER model. SAFER is the acronym S, meaning step in when you observe behavior that doesn't align with the institution. A stands for address the behavior with the patient or visitor. F stands for focus on the institution's values. E stands for explain the expectations and set boundaries with the patients and visitors. And R stands for report the incident to your supervisor. I think these are rare instances, but I I think it's worth discussing because patients have a variety of reasons why they refuse trainee involvement. And this is something that I have encountered through the years. Those are some great tips. We're on to our last but not least medical legal myth. And that is that if a patient wishes to leave against medical advice, a signed form is all that's required. And this one I've seen many, many times. Our wonderful nursing colleagues will sometimes tell me, oh, that patient left against medical advice. I gave them the sheet of paper to sign. Just wanted to let you know. And I didn't get a chance to actually speak to the patient before they left against medical advice, which I'm never quite comfortable with. In terms of this signed form, when is a signed form appropriate, if at all? And how would you suggest that we speak to patients when they do want to leave against medical advice? I'm really glad we're talking about this. I think that this is a myth that we need to dispel, that a signed form is all that's required at our institution, we don't actually have a leaving against medical advice signed oh, form. Lucky you. No, there's there's <laughs> yeah. no such form. And I, I, I personally really don't like those forms. I agree with you. And the reason is because a, a signed form does not replace a good informed discussion. I do see a theme in our medical legal myths here that it's really all about a good discussion with the patient. So whether we're talking about discharge instructions whether we're talking about leaving against medical advice, discussing these things with your patients. So talking to your patients is important. Yes, we're time pressured, but it seems like that seems to be a theme throughout this. It's unfortunate that the EMRs that we've all adapted have kind of forced us to spend less time with patients in some ways. I hope there's some sort of really smart person out there that can design our emerges so that we can have efficient EMRs, but at the same time, have the time required to spend time actually discussing these things with our patients. I think you've hit the nail on the head. This work is hard. And I don't want your listeners to come away from this thinking that, you know, I have to be the standard of perfection. It it is hard work to be mindful in each moment and take the time with each patient and family to have that discussion, especially when you've just come off a hot recess or you've, you've had something challenging happen to you. But I hope what your listeners take away is that the discussion is important. It's, it's important for them, and it's important for us as well to ensure that you know, we're delivering excellent, safe medical care. Let's hit the last medical legal myth. And again, that is, if a patient wants to leave against medical advice, a signed form is all that is required. I mean, like I said, the leaving against medical advice form, if your institution had one, does not replace a good informed discussion. I think the first thing to think about is whether the patient is actually capable of making this decision to leave against medical advice. And by capable, I mean, do they understand and appreciate the decision they're making, the consequences of treatment or no treatment? Do they understand their disease and what the consequences might be? 
it's important to say capacity is a spectrum. It's also situationally dependent. So you may have a mature minor that can be capable of consenting for stitches, but perhaps not chemotherapy. Capacity can fluctuate as we have had patients who are elderly who are perfectly capable at 2 p.m. when you saw them, but at 9 p.m. are sundowning and are not capable of making a decision. It would be prudent to verify the patient's understanding of their illness, the signs and symptoms that would necessitate a reassessment, where they need to seek care, and and get them to teach it back to you. Like we said before, you know, what's your understanding of the disease? Can you tell me in your own words why you prefer to leave? even though the physicians and nurses are asking you to stay, can you tell me in your own words what might happen if you refuse to stay and your trope is 5,000? Where appropriate, it might be very reasonable to include family and loved ones in this discussion with a patient's permission. The patient has only met us for maybe 20 minutes. They have no reason to you know, have the same therapeutic relationship as they do with their family. They may not want to listen to what Dr. Tang's saying, but they listen to their sister, who's a nurse, or their brother, who's a PSW. That's important. Involving other members of the healthcare team. They may have a fantastic relationship with their social worker that's here in the department, and that might be helpful, having the social worker talk to them along with the physician and the nurse, rather than the physician leading the discussion. I think that the last thing is that ensuring that, you know, if a capable patient wishes to leave against medical advice, that they understand the door is open for them to come back, you know, that we're not mad at them, that that it doesn't mean that they couldn't seek care from us again, especially if something changes. I think that's really important to maintain the therapeutic bond. So in summary, a leaving against medical advice form does not replace a good informed discussion in a capable patient. The CMPA has a fantastic e-learning module on informed discharge, which is available online. Yeah, I find so often the reason why they want to leave against medical advice is because they have a cat at home that they want to feed or something that's relatively simple to fix the problem and have them stay. And so I think, yeah, it's just really having a discussion with them and trying to get to the bottom of the reason why they want to leave. And then the other very common one is that they've just been waiting too long. Do you have any pearls of wisdom in terms of when you're faced with a patient who tells you that they've just been waiting too long, they've been here for nine hours, they can't wait for their CT scan report anymore, and they just want to leave? I think that taking a step back, taking a deep breath, and trying to see it from the patient's point of view. Our wait times have been long. It has been a long wait. And, and, and reflecting that back to them, you know, you're absolutely right, ma'am. You have been waiting a long time, and I apologize for that. But I'm worried about you, truly. I want you to be well. I want to make sure that, you know, the condition that we're trying to rule out is not the case. And I'm worried that if you leave, X, Y, and Z may happen. I wouldn't want that to happen. How can we come to an agreement about how to get you to stay so that you stay well? What can we do? And trying to find some common agreement and showing some empathy. And and like I said, Anton, this isn't easy. You know, this is hard work that we do. And it's hard to stay empathetic for each patient, especially when we're dealing with all the constraints we, we are. But I do think it's important. And I try to do that. I'm not perfect by any means, but it's important. I think that's a great way to finish off this piece on the note of empathy and the importance of empathy and compassion. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Tang, for all your insights into the world of medical legal myths. If we can come up with any other key medical legal myths, I'd love to have you back on EM Cases. Thanks for having me.